Hey, this is Barbara Corker, and you are now tuned in to Business Unusual. And everything you ever learned about business, throw it out the window. I'm going to tell you the real deal. Listen in. Today, I'm going to answer all your burning questions about work, life, starting a company, getting on track, and much, much more. Be sure to call in to the Business Unusual hotline with your question at 888-BARBARA. That's 888-B-A-R-B-A-R-A. This episode is presented by AT&T Business. Hey, you want to be successful? So does everybody. Everybody reaches for success, but everyone's definition of success is fairly similar. Come listen to Mark Randolph, the co-founder and first CEO of the ridiculously successful Netflix. Listen to what he has to say about reaching for success. Welcome, Mark. I was so excited about speaking with you today because I've read so darn much on you. And I'm hoping I'm going to come up with some questions you haven't heard before, but I'm not sure that's possible because you've been interviewed 5 million times, I'm sure, right? Well, Barbara, I do, I, I'm, I'm confident you'll figure out some new angle. But listen, even, even before we start, I, I kind of have to say that um, you really don't know how important it is that I'm finally getting a chance to meet you. And, and let me explain why, because I'm sure I'm everybody starts off that way. It sounds like baloney coming my way. I know. I, and I, I, I was thinking about saying this. I go, she is going to get so... But listen, I'll tell you, it's different than perhaps you've heard before. When I was a, still in school, my mother was a real estate agent. Ah. And um, she idolized you. Oh my and God. more than that, um, she's so, you so inspired her. And you inspired her in an interesting way, which is that I think my mom saw this industry that was largely women realtors. And she looked around and said, you know, it's kind of weird because all the agencies, all the brokerages seem to be owned by men. Oh. And she wanted to have her own brokerage, her own agency. You grew up in Westchester and there were no female owned agencies until maybe 30 years ago. I agree with you. Yeah, I guess Julia B. Fee was the other, uh, not to get, get, get too detailed into the weeds on real estate, but she seriously would talk all the time, Barbara Quirk in this, Barbara Quirk in that. Um, she was on the board of Relo and she must have met you at some function oh, or other. Course. And your mother's first name? Uh, Mickey, Mickey Randolph. It was Randolph Properties. Of course. Why didn't I put that together? Oh, she was solid. Solid yeah. the rock. No bullshit about that woman whatsoever. And no. She, she, her who worked for her. She was, she was my inspiration in many ways as an entrepreneur because I, I saw her doing the things you have to do to build a business. Yes. I mean, at first as a realtor, but then starting her own agency and then eventually having a network of agencies, a network of, of offices. Um, but again, uh, I know how much she respected you. And here's the last piece to this is that obviously I've had this opportunity to meet lots and lots of really interesting, really successful people. And my parents aren't around now for me to tell them who I'm meeting, but I know that they wouldn't have really been that impressed because they weren't that type of people. But if I had told my mom that I'm getting a chance to talk to Barbara Corcoran, that that would have uh, resonated with her. So thank you for the opportunity. I would have definitely interviewed you when you were five, if I had known that. 
back then and say, I see great things in this guy. He's going to be very rich one day. Well, my mom would have agreed with you. <laughs> I can't believe I didn't put your mother's first name together with your last name and see yeah. that coming. Wow. Yeah. What a treat to even think back at those reload days and the good times we had. But she was not a fluffy woman. She told it like it was, no. heard what she said, said what she meant, and left the scene. That was, that was your mother. You know? So I got to tell you one little quick real estate story before we actually get into Netflix and all the rest of it, oh, is that we, uh, for those who don't know, uh, Westchester County, where I grew up, Chappaqua in particular, was a pretty upper middle class, maybe even wealthy community. And we, we lived in a pretty nice house. It was up in a hill. It had a big lake behind it. It had the whole, or, you know, you drove down the row of the orchards. It was pretty impressive. But, you know, a lot of time people would be moving from moving up. They're moving to Chappaqua. And they'd, they'd, they'd come meet with the realtor to take them around. And of course, they are all high and mighty because they're moving to Chappaqua. Yeah. And my mom used to say that when someone was particularly unbearable and um, demeaning uh, and treating her, that occasionally she'd do the thing where she says, I hope it's okay. I just need to swing by the house and pick something up. <laughs> and of course, she'd drive them in to the house. And she goes, shut, shut them right up. <laughs> wow. Oh, good for her. Yeah. I wish I was in the backseat of one of those rides. <laughs> <laughs> I never heard that story from her, so I'm happy you're sharing yeah. with me. Yeah. Good for her. Good. Yeah. She got even. She got even. <laughs> she took control. <laughs> no one's going to uh, make her feel uh, less than someone else. Yeah. So, so let me start there, which is where I wasn't planning on starting at all. But what about control? Everything I read about you uh, made me feel like control is not a big issue for you whatsoever. The different judgments you've made along the way, what you prioritize, how you're willing to share credit or give away credit, how you uh, relinquished your role as CEO after I think it was six years or maybe five years at, at your, uh, the company you founded. I mean, I, I was shocked at the lack of ego between the lines I found at every turn when I was trying to get to know you by reading up on you. So what's that about? You had a controlling mom, a gracious way with her, but she was controlling. Yeah. Uh, what about you? Like that doesn't quite gel. It, it, it's funny because, you know, I, I became an entrepreneur 40 years ago. Mm -hmm. um, and back then, as you know, you may, may remember is that there wasn't this big thing about entrepreneurs. It, it no. wasn't yet this glorified profession where they had movies about it and TV shows and they didn't have Shark Tank. And mm. it, it, they had entrepreneurs, of course, but it wasn't a big thing. And so when I began getting into starting companies and doing my own thing, it was for very, and pardon me if I'm using the term, very pure reasons. Mm -hmm. I never had it in the back of my head that I was going to be rich or that I was going to be well known or I was going to be famous or I was drawn to it because I loved solving um, problems. Mm. I would see the world as an imperfect place and I go, there's got to be a better way to do that. Mm. I saw it as a chance to solve puzzles. And because of that, I really was lucky enough not to have gotten trapped in the sense of this is about power. This is about ego. I mean, listen, I, I'm a normal person. Of course I have an ego too, 
but the entrepreneurship was never about that, which made me able to do things that says when this stops being interesting, when I stop being good at it, it's a kind of a signal to me that it's probably the right time for me not to be doing what I'm doing and do and do something else. And, and, and Netflix, for example, I didn't start Netflix until I was 38 years old. I had a chance to realize those critical things about myself, which is not only what I am good at, but what I enjoy doing. Mm-hmm. Um, and having the flexibility to do those things, that's what success is, not necessarily continuing to run a bigger and bigger company that A, you don't like as much, and B, you're frankly not very good at. I get it, but you know, still the part that baffles me is I interview so many entrepreneurs as, as you do on your very excellent podcast, which I enjoy. You're so comfortable with somebody you're interviewing. I think that's why you get people to open up to you. But what I don't really get is why you didn't buy into the power I get caught on that monkey hook somewhere along the way, because there is a real sexiness uh, to being influential and for everybody knowing your name because of what you just accomplished. And I don't know how you were able to like ferociously work with that, that work ethic, the pushing all the time to get what you got, but not to buy into, I, I can't leave this. This is so powerful. This tastes so good. Everybody's treating me like a big shot. I love this. That had to resonate on some level with you. Uh, sure. I mean, I recognize the feeling. All I can say is I'm just not wired wired that way uh, you know and listen the the classic one that i know you're kind of referring to is that you know i was at netflix um and i had not been and i was a ceo of netflix um uh, and reed hastings who's the current ceo my co-founder um he was no, not really working full-time at the company and well, at first he was going to uh, stanford business school i think he was going to business school you were running the business i mean even that was remarkable to me they said yeah sure you don't have to show up just go to business school that's fine with me <laughs> what? let me read that again well well his intention of course was not was not to join the company his intention was oh. that his main gig was going to become much more of a philanthropist try and really change the world of education and he was going back to get a higher degree in education oh, but I'm- you know once you're steeped in that entrepreneurial culture, you can't walk away entirely. So I think Reed's interest at the time was, all right, I'm going to go to school. I'm going to really work on education, but I like to keep a hand in the startup game. And so I was going to go all in. I was going to be the CEO. I was going to start the company, run the company, hire the people. He would be my board chair and he would have a chance to kind of, he was my angel investor and he'd have a chance to kind of be part of it without it being a full-time thing. Uh-huh. And that's in fact how it started. And it went that way for a while. I'm jumping ahead a little bit, but uh-huh. there was that one evening where he, on the way home from school, popped his head in my office and said, Mark, we've got to talk. And as you know, that's usually not good news. Never good. Yeah. And it wasn't in this case. And began to walk me through this PowerPoint slideshow, the theme of which was, I'm concerned. He was concerned about my leadership. He was concerned about my judgment. But was he involved uh, in the business at the time and privy to your leadership style and feedback from your employees, et cetera? Or yes, but just- not in a direct way. Not that he was there uh, 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 all the time, but he would, was in and out. 
And he was seeing big picture issues. He was seeing issues with how I was setting up the company for its next round of fundraising. He was concerned about my hiring. I would want to strangle him right then and there within two minutes. I would have to strangle him. <laughs> well, I did. I did say, when I realized what was going on, that he was actually presenting this to me. I go, Reed, I am not going to sit here while you pitch me on how I suck. Yeah. <laughs> and he goes, you can see he kind of took him back. And then he closes the lid and goes, okay. Um, but there's an important thing you have to understand, a quick background about this is that Reed and I, from the moment we met, have shared this cultural love of truth telling. We have had this relationship where we could say anything to each other that we never would hedge, would shade the truth. We never would spare each other's feelings. We always believed in saying, this is how it goes down. And I've always been like that. He's always been like that. And we had kindred spirits in that. So of course, when someone like that comes in, who you deeply respect, and you know that you trust them, you can't dismiss this and saying, oh, he has an ulterior motive. Oh, he's just trying. You listen and you go, wow, maybe he's right. Wow. And as he pitched me, at first, I thought he was firing me. He had a, a more equity than I did. Um, he was chairman of the board. And what I realized after a bit was he was actually saying something very different. What he was saying is that things were going to become so challenging as we went forward that to give the ch company the best chance of success, he should join the company full time and we should run the company together. But he in a more senior position. Yes, and as he made this case, it was really hard for me to deny that fundamental truth that it would be stronger having us run it together. But here's the, here's the ego piece, which is that I, of course, as every entrepreneur does, had this dream, which was I would start and run this big successful company. Mm. And what I realized as I, sat hearing Reed lay this out for me is that in reality, those were two different dreams. Mm. There was the dream of the big successful company and there was the dream of me running it. Mm. And I realized that I had to make a decision here, which was which was more important. Mm. And, and what made this more complicated is that the dream of the big successful company was no longer just my dream. I mean, it was my employee's dream. It was my investor's dream. In some ways, it was our customer's dreams. And I kind of realized that I really had this obligation to do everything I possibly could to make it a successful company, even if it meant that the dream of me being the person running it, or at least running it by myself, was no longer the case. And I, if, you, if this make this sound like Mark sits there and then after 10 minutes goes, oh, gee, okay, no, this, this was not something that I came to easily. I remember after we left, just sitting, you know, in the afternoon and it got dimmer and then it got dark and I'm still sitting there. And finally I went home to my wife and we opened a bottle of wine and sat out in the porch of our house and, um, you know, sat there for a bunch of hours while I talked this through and ultimately came to the realization that Reed was right, that it would be stronger with and us doing it together. Time, one bottle of wine, one conversation <laughs> with your wife, and one presentation by Reed, you're able to digest all that, 
put the ego to the side, see the larger picture and say, I get it. I'm okay. I get it. I'm willing to give this a shot. And it, you, again, that the reality hits you in different ways at different times. And so coming to grips with it fully mm. takes a while. Uh, the first time you get up in front of the company to announce it, it stings. The first time there's a big meeting where I didn't need to be there, but I wasn't, it stings. So yes, I, I'm, not, I'm not some non-egoless person, but fundamentally, in all sincerity, looking back, that probably was the best decision I made the certainly my entire time at Netflix, because Reed was right in that those years we ran the company together were in many ways the renaissance um, at Netflix. So many of the big innovations that people know of now for Netflix took place during those years. And then certainly, if you look at what Reed has done with Netflix since then, it is absolutely remarkable. I owe so much to the fact that of what Reed has accomplished since I left and what the rest of the company has accomplished since I left, that it would be so petty of me to say, oh, I sh should have been my, it was my company. Uh, because quite frankly, it would be a different company. And quite frankly, I have to look myself in the eye, in the mirror, and, uh, and say, I, I don't, could I have done that? Could I have done what Reed was able to do? Could I have done what we did together? And probably honestly, the answer is, uh, answer is no. Uh -huh. All right, you sold me. <laughs> Still an adoration of you, but it's a it's a coaching that I give to early stage entrepreneurs all the time, mm -hmm. because the number of entrepreneurs in this world who have the skill to do the things you have to do as an early stage company, where everything is unproven, where you have no idea what the repeatable, scalable business model looks like, where you are a jack of all trades and you can be great at that, but the number of people who are great at that and great mm -hmm. as the company scales and becomes large and multinational, you can count it on almost one hand. And what sinks a company is someone not having the humility to recognize, hey, it's you know, lead, follower, get out of the way. Yes. And uh, wow. when I coach someone, and I have coached entrepreneurs through this. You address um, it on your podcast all the time, and right between the eyes, you address it every time. Yep. And it, 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 having it gone through it myself gives me some credibility. In, uh, of course. It worked out for me. It certainly worked out. You didn't <laughs> your stock when you left there, did you? Uh, well, not, not yes and no. Mm -hmm. uh, there came this moment, and this was probably six years in, where I had the secondary realization, the one we alluded to earlier, which is that Netflix is now turning into a big company. By then we had had our IPO. We had the financial resources. We were hiring amazing people to work at the company. And it had this realization that I, of course, loved this company. I mean, it was my baby and I cherished it the way you, you love one of your children. Yes. But I realized that it was no longer a startup really. And that the things that I was doing every day, I didn't really love. Oh. And quite honestly, I was not that good at it. Yes. And that's kind of the moment that I said, I think if I'm really gonna be successful, 
success means getting to do the things you love and that you're good at. And that's early stage companies. And it wasn't like one day I said, oh, I'm out of here. It took a year. But to the fact of, do I own Netflix stock? Did I sell Netflix stock? Back then, if you were a founder, if you were on the board, if you were a senior executive and you sold stock, at least sold stock in significant numbers, it sent a very, very negative signal. Yes. Now, of course, there's all kinds of mechanisms for founders to do that. Yes. It didn't exist then. Mm-hmm. And I had had some financial success in the past, but nothing on the order of magnitude that Netflix represented. And I said, for myself, for my family, for my children, I need to balance <laughs> my portfolio, as they say. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the only way to do that would be to really remove myself from a senior position at the company. And so over a period of about a year, sequentially began passing off more and more of my portfolio. Uh, and then my last project, as a little piece of trivia, my last project was working on a kiosk project in uh, Las Vegas, Nevada, with a, a gentleman named Mitch Lowe, who when this kiosk project worked phenomenally well, but we decided not to pursue it at Netflix, Mitch said, oh, that can't stand. And he left Netflix and used that to found Redbox. Ah, There's a little bit of an untold Netflix red box history. Wow, didn't, didn't catch that anywhere. <laughs> that's, a sta- that's, book, that's my next book, Barbara. Okay. <laughs> um, I had a curiosity question more than an important question. When you were commuting with Reed uh, for, what was it, six, nine months, somewhere around there to Silicon Valley, in one of those discussions, you gave birth to the idea of how about Netflix? You got the concept going. Um, do you think it crossed your mind for a moment then or his mind that this was a idea that could become the Netflix? So it was like, that's interesting. Give it a whirl. What was that attitude? And is that, and most entrepreneurs that you speak with, do they have that big aha moment where they know they're onto something or is it just like, well, that sounds good. Let's go with it. What was your own attitude and what do you find other people do? So as they say in uh, the screenwriting business, let me set the scene for you, Barbara. So the first thing, in this car ride, Reed and I were commuting back and forth to work. And the company that that we were both working at, that he had founded and was running, and he had bought a company that I had founded. And so we were working together. It was being sold. And we had about six months waiting for that deal to close. And Reed and I lived in the same town. And so we would carpool to work together. And of course, as soon as we realized we're both going to be out of a job, I go, okay, I'm starting another company. He's going to go back to school. But then it goes, okay, what company should we start? And that's what these car rides were. And the way this worked, this was not like Reed and I were movie buffs. We were not sitting in the car debating who the best French cinematographers were or who deserved the Academy Award for this or that. You know, we both had young kids. So our movie watching was like 98% Disney. So that was it. But instead, I was, I'd get in the car in the morning and I would pitch him ideas. And so the way it would work is I'd pitch my, and I'll, I'll pitch you one right now real quickly. And this is seriously one of the ideas I pitched him. Okay, Barbara, you ready? Yeah. Listen, man. Oh, great. I've never really pitched to a shark before. So I this is kind of- I in advance, I'm out, but go ahead. Pitch This is kind of exciting. <laughs> um, so picture this, personalized shampoo. You're going to cut off a lock of your hair. You're going to mail it into us. Hey, this is 25 years ago. So uh, I'm ahead of my time. Okay. Uh, we'll formulate a custom blend. You'll subscribe. And then- the other is we also pitched him custom dog food. But then what Reed would do is I'd pitch him and he'd sit there 
and he'd stare out the window. And maybe 60 seconds would go by, maybe 90 seconds. And I'm used to this. So, but what I know is happening is it's the wheels are spinning and the calculations and the logic. And, and then all of a sudden he goes, okay, that'll never work. And then lays into this perfect business school-like dissertation about all the flaws and the market sizing and the customer acquisition costs and basically just rips it to shreds. But listen, I'm no pushover either. So then I go, no, here's where you're wrong. And I'd launch back in and we'd have these long drawn out battles. A debating team on wheels is what you had. That's exactly right. So when I pitched him the idea for a video rental by mail, Yes. Uh, which was the precursor to this was we can really go after video stores. Mm -hmm. uh, we'll do it as a mail order business. We'll ship them the movies. Mm -hmm. And he had a million idea, million problems. And one of which was back then video was on DV was on VHS. I don't know if you remember that big and heavy. So Reed said too expensive, takes too long. And he was right. Mm -hmm. So that idea was a bad idea. But then what happened is about two months later, Reed lets me in the car, goes, listen, you know that video rental by mail idea that you pitched me on a couple uh, months ago? He goes, I just heard about this new technology called the DVD. Wow. It's this little disc, it's in test market now, it's thin and it's light. And he didn't even to go further. I immediately grasped that we could maybe mail this thing to people. But here's the thing, here's how Reed and I reacted, rather, then let's go to the office and research, the, research this or work on a business plan or do a pitch deck. We immediately turned the car around and said, let's figure out whether this actually might work. And we drove back down to the town we lived in and went looking for a DVD. And of course they weren't available. So we settled for buying a music CD and bought it. Then went two doors down and bought a little pink gift envelope. Look, he put a greeting card in and then put the CD in the envelope and then mailed it to Reed's house. And the very next morning when he uh, came to pick me up, he just held up the little pink envelope with the unbroken CD that had gotten to his house. Just in yep. that simple envelope. That was it. And, and he was a that, believer. He said, this is it. This is the problem that was just he goes, solved by this. He goes, but that was when we both said, this just might work. Wow. Uh, and then, you know, then there, was, then there was a little more research of figuring out how many DVD players have, are going to be sold. How many discs are there? And don't forget, this was early. This was 1997. Mm. So e-commerce was in its infancy. So we, you couldn't just get a Shopify account. I mean, you had to build a e-commerce website. You had to build your own payment portals to the bank. You had to build your own servers. I mean, and so we had to look into all that. But ultimately, we said, if we're really going to figure out whether this idea works or not, the only way to do it is to actually try it. Mm -hmm. And uh, we took that step and Reed wrote a check for $1.9 million. Wow. I you deposited the money in the local Wells Fargo. I, I kind of was expecting when I walked up and slipped this one point that they'd hit the buzzer underneath and <laughs> the manager would come running out and escort me in the back and like we're buying a watch at Cartier, their champagne would pour or whatever. But nope, I just get the little receipt back. Thank you for your business. No toaster or nothing. nothing. But anyway, we deposit the check. I get a small office, uh, hire a dozen people. We spend six months um, building a simple e-commerce website. And uh, April of 1998, 
23 years ago last month, yeah. we uh, oh, launched this little company, when which you, Netflix. When you mail that CD and it arrived intact, not broken, was, you know how people say your aha moment? Did you know right then and there, we'll work out all the other problems, this is it? And did not anyone tell you it was a stupid idea, the whole concept? Well, first of all, uh, let's see, no and yes. So never, never the slightest hint that this could be a big company. Certainly zero. I mean, you would have had me committed if I had said, oh, Reed, this is amazing. It's just going to be a matter of years. We're going to have uh, 200 million subscribers and there's going to be this thing called Netflix and chill. I, you, you would have like gone, all right, this, Mark has lost it. I would have said to you, where are you going to get the first customer? Yes. Millions of people. You're crazy. Where are you going to get the first customer? And I do want to go back to that in a minute. I want to ask you how you knew you would get enough customers. Maybe you didn't. I don't know. But go ahead. I didn't mean to. Well, you, you were asking. The other piece was, did, you, did everyone say yeah. you're crazy? And ab- absolutely. And the, the reason that the book is called That'll Never Work and the reason that the podcast is called That'll Never Work oh, is because that is what everyone told me when I pitched this idea. I mean, the investors, that'll never work. And my, you know, my employees trying to get them to leave better jobs to come work for me. That'll never work. Even, even my wife, that'll never work. Except your mother invested. She didn't say that will never work. Yes. But I think that was much more of a, that was the mother son kabuki theater ritualized performance uh, where as soon as you walk in, you know, she knows she's going to ha- going to invest. I know she's going to invest. But we still have to go through the whole <laughs> facade of me walking her through the pitch deck and her asking questions. Yeah. But yeah, I'm sure in the back of her mind, she was going, I am never going to see this $25,000 again. When she made that $25,000 investment in the seed round of Netflix, uh, and I'm sure she thought this is the, I'm never going to see this again. As a joke, she goes, you know, Mark, when you're successful with this, I'm going to buy myself an apartment on the Upper East Side, which was kind of one of her fa- long-term fantasies. Lo and behold, after Netflix had its IPO, my mom actually used the proceeds from that $25,000 investment to buy the wow. apartment on the Upper that? East Side. That actual year was which year? That would have been 2003. She made a lot of money. Yeah, <laughs> more now, but they weren't cheap then. No, it was not cheap then. That's why it was such a fantasy for her. But anyways, it, it, everyone said this is never going to work. And you know, the reality is once we launched the company, you know, in day one, well, what a surprise they were right. It didn't work. It was a terrible idea that nobody wanted to rent DVDs by mail using the model that we had. If you wait until you have an idea you're sure is going to work, you will wait forever. I mean, I, I've heard, you know, I've heard you heard you give advice you know, on your podcast, and the people say, "When's a good time to start?" Oh. Or, um, I, I, "I'm scared well, someone's going to steal my idea," and you go, "For God's sake, just do it!" You know, start because yeah. nothing happens until you start. You'll be thinking forever, and that, it's it's fine. And it didn't work, and we just began this year and a half process of figuring it out. Let's take a short break to talk about a company I love. Now let's get back to the show. But what were you changing in that year and a half that turned it enough to the side so that it would work? Because the the concept was still the same, 
but what was the mechanics of what made it a business that actually ticked the changes you made in that crucial first year and a half? I think that's a crucial time in building any business. Absolutely. You know, I mean, so much of what, what, we, what I've learned as an entrepreneur came from that year and a half. But it, the, 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 the reality is that when we started Netflix, you know, for people who only know Netflix now as a streaming service, back then, if you wanted a movie, we mailed it to you. We yeah. didn't stream it. Streaming didn't come for another nine years. It came in a little red envelope. And at the very beginning, there was due dates. There was late fees. I remember. I mean, I it was very in those things. Yeah, hey, there was very little business model innovation. For it. Yeah. <laughs> well, you're not the only person. It's one of the reasons that we were confident that we might have a chance against the big entrenched competitor, which was Blockbuster, because everyone hated that. But that didn't work. And so we immediately began saying, okay, let's try and figure it out. And we began testing everything we could think of. We'd test, you know, uh, rent one, get one free. We'd try punch cards where you buy pack, you know, groups of five or 10, well, rent it. And if you like it, you can then buy it and keep it. I mean, all kinds of things, which gave us glimmerings of what customers cared about. Mm. We began learning about what do people think about when they want to rent DVDs by mail? What mm -hmm. makes that more compelling than going to the Blockbuster? We tried different selections, different promotions. And the breakthrough came again a year and a half later um, after Reed and I one afternoon were in our warehouse. This is a year and a half in. And at that point, the warehouse probably had several hundred thousand DVDs in it. Mm -hmm. And we were looking around and I remember, you know, commenting, it's such a shame that all these DVDs are sitting on the shelf doing nobody any good. Wonder if there's a way we could store them at the customer's houses. Let them just keep you them until we need them. Kidding. I am really? not kidding. And so then Reed and I began brainstorming, well, how would that work? Would you do people mail them to each other? And we came up with this crazy idea, which was Let's just get rid of due dates and late fees altogether. We'll mail someone a disc. They can keep it as long as they want. And when they're done, we'll mail it back to us. And then we'll automatically ship them a next one. They can make a list of what they want to see. At that, at that juncture, did, when you eliminated late fees, because I was a user then, I was worried. I liked it. <laughs> I was worried about your site just as a user. Um, but when you eliminated that, uh, did you increase the subscription rates? I don't remember anything else going up. I wondered how you're going to stay in business. How did you survive without those very important late fees? There weren't subscription fees until that moment. It was all a la carte. The crazy thing was doing no due dates, no late fees, and saying, we don't want to charge someone each time they want to exchange a Dix. Let them do it as often as they want. We'll just charge them a monthly fee. You offer them and freedom. Correct. And so then we realized you did the math and we go, wow, we're letting someone trade discs as often as they want. They might do this 20 times in a month. Well, how are we ever going to charge enough to make that happen? Mm -hmm. And doing the math, we go, well, not everyone's going to do that. Some people are going to rent once or twice a month, some three, four or five. And we could spend forever debating. Mm -hmm. Let's find out. Right. Let's test this. Mm -hmm. And uh, we tested it and it was amazingly successful. From day one, we knew that we had a winner. People loved it. Yes. Um, and we loved it so much that we immediately said, we got to get rid of the rest of our business. This, this, this is now Netflix. Mm -hmm. 
Forget the a la carte. The only way that we work now is no due dates, no late fees, subscription. And that moment, uh, that marked really the, when we stopped kind of being a startup and had found this repeatable, scalable business model. Easier to fund, easier to get everybody to rally around the flag. All my <laughs> half. No, it makes sense. I hear, I hear versions of this story. Uh, what I have never heard anyone really address as cleanly as you do is uh, the idea that uh, people are saying it doesn't make any sense. But I'd, I'd like to ask you just on your, for yourself, not other people, what does it take inside you, you think, to ignore all the naysayers and to think, no, I'm sure, I'm sure this is going to work, even though you haven't found the formula. Remember, it's different looking back and saying, I'm sure it was going to work and be a big shot. But when you don't have those answers, is it a certain trait in the personality? Is it a certain low IQ that you don't know to question enough? <laughs> what is that? Because I find it recurs in my most successful businesses from Shark Tank, and I can't find those same qualities in my people that don't do as well. What do you think it is? What's the core of that? I think it's, this is going to sound trite, practice. I think that I've done... I mean, I, I say, I, I get it. We didn't do Netflix until I was, what, 38. Uh, Netflix is my sixth startup. And even before doing startups that were economically based, I was always starting things. I was starting clubs. I was launching magazines. I was doing all kinds of crazy stuff. I was doing things that people said that'll never work that I would go, gosh, maybe they're all right. And I'd try something at a very, very small scale. Mm -hmm. And the world would not collapse, that it, mm -hmm. it wouldn't work, but who cared? Didn't, didn't make a difference or it would work. And I go, they had no idea what they were talking about. But I began internalizing the fact that in fact, when you're trying something that no one's done before, when you're solving a problem that has never really been solved before, nobody knows anything. That anyone who tells you that'll never work doesn't really know. But the same token goes, the people who go, I love that idea. It's going to be incredible. They don't know either. That the only voice to listen to is the one that says, the only way you're going to find this out, Mark, is by doing it, by trying it. And the skill, I so firmly believe this, the real skill in an entrepreneur is not how good their ideas are. Because nobody knows anything and ideas are garbage. The skill is they're really clever and creative and figuring out ways they can quickly, easily, and cheaply try their ideas. Yes. They can try them in ways that are not existentially threatening to the company. They try them in ways that if they don't work, no big deal. We try something else. Uh -huh. um, and success is proportionate to how many things you try. Yes. And the number of things you try is proportionate to how quickly and cheaply and easily you can, uh, you can try them. Mark, do you believe that... Um people get their confidence by succeeding at ideas or do they get more confidence by knowing they'll keep trying? Just curious. I have a theory on this. Just wonder how you feel. Uh, about oh that. boy. Well, I hope we, we match up. I think sure that people do. get their confidence from the experience. I think that when you try something, even when it doesn't work, it's thrilling. You found the answer to something because almost never is it an abject failure. I mean, I guess people say, well, you wasn't a failure because you learned at least one thing, which is that this doesn't work. But that's not the case. You almost always get some glimmer yes. of what might work. It is this 
interesting turning over. And it's that discovery, in my opinion, which is so fascinating. And I think, in fact, the people who get inspired by their great idea, oh, that is dangerous. Because ideas, uh, ideas are so temporal, so ephemeral. Uh, everyone, we all listen. We all love the idea. You love this myth of the person's Newton under the apple tree, and the apple falls on him, and there it is—the theory of gravity. Or more contemporary, the can't get a cab on New Year's, and there's the idea for Uber or oh. two guys with the air mattress. There's Airbnb it, or a guy with a late fee. There's Netflix. It does not happen that way. The idea is a bad one. They're all bad ideas. But the thrill is starting with a bad idea and the process of figuring out how am I going to find the thing that eventually works. And it might take, if you're lucky, only 50 experiments, but it might take you 500 experiments. Um, and you, and that, that's for me, as you can probably hear, oh, that's the thing that I love about being an thrill. entrepreneur. Ideas, ideas count for nothing. Yeah. No such thing as a good idea. They're all bad ideas. I'm sitting always in my Shark Tank seat and everybody is coming pitching ideas, ideas. And most of the debate is about whether the idea is good enough that it could grow some legs and it could run and grow up and make some money, right? But most of the focus with the entrepreneurs that pitch to us readily, one door after another opening, is about the idea. They're in love with their idea. And I have the most money I've lost consistently through the 12 years I've been sitting <laughs> in my seat have been with entrepreneurs who are in love with their idea. I can't stand someone. They say, I've got the passion. I love it. I know it will work. I know it will work. I know. But meanwhile, uh, they are very frightening to me, that group of people, which is nine out of 10 people, I have to say, because they don't have the acumen, curiosity, or practicality, uh, or I don't know what other word I'd use, to, um, to reinvent by the day, reinvent the idea by the day. And oh, that doesn't, it, exactly what you say, that doesn't work. Go there, they wiggle their way to success. But when I just yeah. focus and, and I like to try to train myself, don't even listen to that idea, just focus on the individual. And I keep asking myself, are they the kind of person that will make it to the finish line, not knowing where the hell that finish line is? I always make a lot of money. So listen, I'm not, I don't know. I have, a, I have a different flaw as an angel investor, which I'll share with you in a little bit. Okay. But what I have learned is that I don't want someone who's in love with their idea. Because yeah. you're right. People are in love with their ideas. What I'm looking for is someone who's not in love with their idea, but who's in love with the problem. Yes. Well said. Because the problem doesn't go away. And so when they're pitching me, I'm, I'm trying to filter out, is this person in love with their idea? They're never going to give up on their idea. They're going to be an idea searching for a problem or have they found a really interesting problem and they understand the problem and they know who has that problem mm. and they'll eventually find the idea that does solve that problem. You know, everyone who's been in a corporate setting and had a brainstorming meeting has had the person who gets up in front and go, here's the brainstorming ground rules. There's no such thing as a bad idea. And I go, no, 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 no. There's no such thing as a good idea. They're all bad ideas. And our job as entrepreneurs is to figure out why they're bad ideas and start that, as you said, that linear path, non-linear path of iterating our way to eventually solving the problem. So yes, someone is in love with the problem, but then as you were kind of alluding to, you want the person with the grit and the persistence and that drive that they know this might 
take a while and that this is going to be hard and you're going to have to keep your team together and you're going to have to be able to raise money to fund this crazy adventure. Uh, and that's what you want. And all the while, keep your own enthusiasm high. I have one uh, more question, even though I think we're out of time, but I'm going to take a little time if you don't mind, because I, no, I, really I don't have mind. to ask, this is your own quote. I want to just ask you about it. Oh, uh, no. I kept no, no, it's good. It's a great one. I just want you to explain okay. it. I think there's a lot to be learned from it. You said that, I'm quoting you, tough love and a dose of humor, with, a, with tough love and a dose of humor, you can unearth, unearth the blind spots that hold an entrepreneur back. I didn't get that. I read it twice. I went, I got to ask him that because I didn't get that. What do you mean by you can unearth the blind spots that hold an entrepreneur back and give me an example? Uh, I'll give you a, slight, a slightly um, oblique example is that when I first began kind of mentoring people, I approached it the same way I approach everything, which is I just tell people the truth. Uh, if I don't think something's not good, I tell them. If I think there's a weakness, I tell them. If I see they're doing something right, I tell them. Yes. Uh, it's just how I am. But what I realized was, for some crazy reason, it's extremely rare in entrepreneurial settings because most entrepreneurs don't get that because their investors don't want to tell them, I don't like your idea because they don't want, they, they always have some other reason why they're not going to invest. So the market's not big enough. I'll come back when you validated as opposed to telling the person that's, you're, I don't like what you're doing. Uh, your employees don't want to tell you the truth sometimes. Your board doesn't want to tell you the truth sometimes. That's usually a role for someone who will tell you the truth. Uh, and that's the tough love part is... I, if I think you're on the wrong track, it does no one any good for me to pump you up and tell you, oh, you're, you're God's gift to entrepreneurship. I want to tell you what I think you could do that would put you on a better track. Uh, and the, the, the bit of humor piece is just that life is too short. Ever since I've been building teams, if you're going to come to work every day and you're going to do hard things, you would better like it. Uh, and you better like the people you work with. And I don't know, it's all personality driven, but I kind of think if we can have a good time while we're at the office, it helps too. And you're right. People have these blind spots because they have these air, these corners they get into because they just can't get their head up high enough to see where the path out of the maze might be. Uh -huh. um, and my job really is to go, unfortunately, you're going to have to go back six steps. But if you ever want to get out, you ever want to find the daylight, um, mm -hmm. that's a necessary step. And I think that's uh, accurately describes what you do on your podcast. I feel like <laughs> you do that again and again, different words, different people, uh, but the same kind of performance again and again to find, find those blind spots, as you call them. Um, I'm going to end it by reminding people uh, your definition of success, because you hear this all the time. And it's easy to write off, I find, someone's definition of success if that someone's a rich man it's like easy for him to say he's got the bucks you know <laughs> but what i i have heard here and i'm sure anyone who listens is going to clearly hear is you've had this definition of success before you were rich from the very beginning and it's held you on the straight and narrow to to stay successful all along the way so i'm going to read it once more um you say you measure your success based on how happy and fulfilled a project is making you. You did say yeah. that. Nobody made that up for you, right? I, I did say that. 
I'm and that if you're, go ahead. you're a lucky man indeed, if you can spend your day um, working on things that you like, that you're good at, and that fulfill you. Um, and the key to that is not, my opinion is not working on things for reasons other than that with huge uncertainty. That if you're doing an entrepreneurial project, you think it's going to make you rich, I hate to break it to you. It's extremely <laughs> unlikely. If you think it's going to make you famous, it's extremely unlikely. But if you pick something that you love doing that really fulfills you by the work you do every day, you'll work really hard at it for those reasons. And lo and behold, that ends up being the path to the businesses being successful if you're in the right place at the right time with the right team. I think that's a message uh, worth taking in so many levels. So you're an amazing guy. I'm not disappointed. Well, I wish your mom was here, Mickey, because I would definitely uh, say to her, you did a damn good job, Mickey. Not just <laughs> your notes, but I'm, this young man, he's, he's top drawer in every way. Yeah. So I'm proud. Well, of thank her. you, Barbara. So where can people <laughs> find you? Uh, for all things Mark Randolph, I do have a website, which for people who are purely phone, there are these things called websites. And this one's at markrandolph.com, which is Mark with a C and Randolph with a PH. But there you can find, if you, you know, there you can find my podcast, links to the book, and of course, links to all the ways if you don't have the attention span for podcasts and books and want everything in nice Twitter length or Instagram length uh, bits and nuggets. But I'm trying to do the same thing you're doing, Barbara, which is really trying inspire people. I'm really trying to give you all the advantages of the things that I learned the hard way to help other people, you know, get some of the fulfillment that I have. Well, you're my new measuring stick. I'm going to start measuring up. I didn't think I was going to. (laughs) (laughs) I don't like it one bit, but I'm going to do it. (laughs) Well, good. Thank you so much, Mark. Really. Thank you for being so open and for being yourself. I appreciate it. My pleasure, Barbara. What a pleasure meeting you. Thanks again. And that's all we have time for today. If you have a question, leave me a voicemail on the Business Unusual hotline, 888-BARBARA. That's 888-B-A-R-B-A-R-A. You can also tweet it to me at Barbara Corcoran, and I may just answer it on a future episode. You've been listening to Business Unusual with me, Barbara Corcoran. Come back next week to hear more steps and missteps I took on the path to success. Search and follow Business Unusual on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts.